Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the Night Owl case? The fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. Why was Susan Lefferts at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences? Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie L.A. Confidential from 1997. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release date was September 19, 1997. The running time, 138 minutes, and it was rated R. The budget, $35 million, and the box office took in $64.6 million. That was domestic gross, making it the 24th-ranked movie of 1997. It did make an extra $60 million internationally. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 99% fresh from 115 reviews. We have to find out who that 1% was. Their critics' consensus was taut pacing, brilliant, dense writing, and Oscar-worthy acting combined to produce a smart, popcorn-friendly thrill ride. Roger Ebert definitely was not one of those 1% negative reviews. He gave it 4 out of 4 stars at the time, and here's his review. Confidential was a key magazine in the 1950s, a monthly that sold millions of copies with its sleazy exposés of celebrity, drugs, and sex. I found it on my dad's night table and read it breathlessly. The stories of reefer parties, multiple divorces, wife swapping, and leading men who like to wear frilly undergarments. The magazine sank in a sea of lawsuits, but it created a genre. The trash tabloids are its direct descendants. 
Watching LA Confidential, I felt some of the same insider thrill that Confidential provided. The movie, like the magazine, is based on the belief that there are a million stories in the city and all of them will raise your eyebrows and curl your hair. LA Confidential is immersed in the atmosphere and lore of film noir, but it doesn't seem like a period picture. It believes its noir values and isn't using them for decoration. It's based on a novel by James Elroy, that lanky, sardonic poet of Los Angeles sleaze. Its director, Curtis Hansen, who directed Bad Influence and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, weaves a labyrinth plot, but the twists are always clear because the characters are so sharply drawn. We don't know who's guilty or who's innocent, but we know who should be. The film is steeped in L.A. lore. Elroy is a student of the city's mean streets. It captures the town just as that post-war moment when it was beginning to become self-conscious about its myth. Joseph Wambaugh writes in one of his books that he's constantly amazed by the hidden threads that connect the high to the low, the royalty to the vermin in Los Angeles where a hooker is only a role from stardom and vice, as they say, versa. One of the reasons LA Confidential is so good, why it deserves to be mentioned with Chinatown, is that it's not just plot and atmosphere. There are convincing characters here. Not least, Kim Basinger's hooker, whose quiet line, I thought I was helping you, is one of the movie's most revealing moments. Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce are two Australian actors who here move convincingly into star-making roles, and Kevin Spacey uses perfect timing to suggest his character's ability to move between two worlds while betraying both. Behind everything, setting the moral tone and pulling a lot of the plot threads is the angular captain, seemingly so helpful. James Cromwell, who is the kindly farmer and babe, has the same benevolent smile in this role, but the eyes are cold, and his values can be seen perhaps the road ahead to Rodney King. LA Confidential is seductive and beautiful, cynical and twisted, and one of the best films of the year. And that's Roger Ebert's review. And Ebert was absolutely right. And if it wasn't for Titanic, which was released the same year, it likely would have won every award possible. Now, I loved LA Confidential the first time I saw it in theaters, and it's still one of my favorite detective films of all time. This is the type of movie that would have thrived in the pre-coat era of Hollywood back in the early 1930s. But those films are now considered rather tame by today's standards which is probably why L.A. Confidential did so well in 1997, because the subject matter could be more visually brutal, whereas pre-code was mostly implied. Okay, the main cast, so I'll cover more about the cast and the making of the film portion, but what an ensemble. You have Russell Crowe, Kim Basinger, Guy Pearce, Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, James Cromwell, and David Strathern. It's just completely perfect to have all of these terrific actors together. The director, Curtis Hansen, I actually covered one of Hansen's early films, which was the sex comedy Losing It from 1983. Completely different. After that, he directed four other films up until L.A. Confidential. That was The Bedroom Window, which is very good and very underrated, Bad Influence, The Hand That Rocks a Cradle, and The River Wild. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So the original budget was $15 million. It did increase to another $20 million. And the producers and director Curtis Hansen knew they couldn't get big-name actors if that was the low budget for the time. Therefore, they needed to find the perfect ensemble of actors just about to hit it big that would fit this smaller budget. Curtis Hansen directed, co-wrote, and co-produced the film. He wanted to direct the tale of Los Angeles, in which he grew up in, which was Reseda. He was a valley kid. He was also trying to incorporate elements of old-time Hollywood and Beverly Hills as well, because his uncle owned a shop there. He wanted the darkness that was rarely shown about Los Angeles in a Hollywood film. 
Once Hansen read the novel of L.A. Confidential, written by James Elroy and released in 1990, this was the story he wanted to adapt to a film. He had read Elroy's earlier works as well and was definitely a fan, but one of the challenges was to reduce the 500-page novel of L.A. Confidential into a cohesive screenplay. That would include looking at portions of the novel that didn't fit the emotional resonance of the screenplay, and then he could therefore remove. Like, much of the backstories of the characters were eliminated for the purposes of the film. And this happens a lot with film adaptations from novels. The other part of adapting the novel was finding the best examples of ensemble plot points they could adapt to screen. This, of course, is very tricky because if you adjust certain elements of the plot, there can be ramifications from this adjustment, which could cause other plot points to fall apart. Meaning if they change one scene, it could inadvertently cause another scene to unravel. Hansen co-wrote the script with Brian Hagelin, who was also a friend of Elroy, and they pitched the script to Warner Brothers, and the studio was not enthusiastic about the script at all, partly because the execs were burnt out on period pieces that took place in the 1950s, and those Raymond Chandler-type detective stories. The other issue was having three main characters, the detectives. The studio wanted to focus the story around the Bud White character, and then have a superstar play that role. Now, a bit of a side note about the author James Elroy. His mother was murdered when he was 10 years old, which is likely the reason he became so fixated with crime and eventually writing crime novels. L.A. Confidential was one of four novels he wrote covering the time period of 1948 through 1959. This time period also included the infamous Black Dahlia murder case of Elizabeth Short. Hansen really had to work on the studio to prove that all three characters were vital to the story, not just one big character. It really was an ensemble piece. And the great part about ensemble films is when it's done right, it's magical. It's like a sports team. It's much more fun to watch the team play together rather than just letting one superstar do everything. You know, sorry, LeBron. Also, the element of film noir, which is now called neo-noir, was very frowned upon by the studio back then because financially, they usually aren't box office smashes. They're appreciated by the film buffs and critics, but critical acclaim only holds so much clout before the studio gets the bottom line of what makes money and what doesn't. So, no surprise, Warner Brothers didn't want to finance LA Confidential. Hansen then found an advocate with producer Michael Nathanson, who hooked up Hansen with a film company named New Regency. The film could be financed by New Regency and then distributed by Warner Brothers because New Regency had a distribution deal with Warners. Again, Hansen really wanted to cast unknowns in the main roles. Part of the reason, besides financially, was with unknowns, the audience doesn't have preconceived biases coming into the film, meaning the audience didn't like or dislike an actor without seeing the film, or who was the hero and, and the villain, and who would be killed and who would survive based on the actor's past work. This all comes into play with films, whether you realize it or not. It's much like reading a novel. Your feelings towards the characters evolve while going through the story because it's all brand new, and that's why you wanted to keep the actors fresh. Maui Finn ended up being the casting director on the film and was vital in getting the main players to fit the characters. The actors had to fit the time period the film was set in. Now, Russell Crowe was a relatively unknown to American audiences at this time, as he was best known for his Australian films. The character of Bud White was actually supposed to be a giant of a man, the biggest and baddest cop in Los Angeles. Now, Crowe thought he was initially miscast, but he was in an Australian film called Romper Stomper in 1992, which was about a Nazi skinhead group where Russell Crowe was the leader. 
This performance helped that tough guy angle for him being cast as Bud White. Also, James Elroy would call Crow during the making of the film to give him short messages and notes about the Bud White character, and this helped Crow understand the character even better. Guy Pearce, another Australian actor, was hesitant about having to fly back and forth between Australia and Los Angeles for auditions, especially when he wasn't even sure he was right for the role. But his agent pushed for Pearce to audition, likely because Hansen had already made up his mind about casting Pearce as Ed Exley. Pearce also said the auditioning process was much different in Australia compared to the United States. With Australia, it was much more straightforward. You audition, and you either get the part or you don't. With Hollywood, you have a meeting, or multiple meetings, you do a screen test, you have various callbacks. It was a much more drawn-out and deliberate process. Because the cast were up-and-coming stars, it gave the film a contemporary feel, even for a period piece. Kevin Spacey in the early 90s was a relatively unknown theater actor, and Curtis Hansen always wanted Spacey to be in his films, but could never get studio approval, for whatever reasons, likely because he was an unknown. But after Spacey won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects, magically, they didn't have any issues with him getting hired for L.A. Confidential. The part of Lynn Bracken was tough to cast because the character had to have an old-fashioned Hollywood glamour, but also been around town long enough to know the game, but not beaten down by the seediness of the town. Initially, Kim Basker had passed on the role because she had just given birth to her daughter, and in her mind, she was semi-retired at that point. However, Hansen was so dead set on having Basinger in the role that he wouldn't take no for an answer. Next was getting Danny DeVito, which was important to have both DeVito and Basinger associated with the film, since the other major players were mostly unknown. DeVito and Basinger gave instant credibility to the film because of their past body of work. Hansen and cinematographer Dante Pinotti didn't want to fall into the trap of shooting the film in sort of a nostalgia haze, which sometimes would happen when modern films tried to recreate a past era. And they accomplished their goal extremely well, and you definitely get the historical vibe without it feeling stale. It's very glamorous and really elegantly shot. Plus, it's neo-noir, so there's always a temptation to make everything dark. But that's not the case in LA Confidential. Actually, LA Confidential almost has a 1970s detective film vibe to it, interestingly enough. The other conscious decision by the costume folks was not to go crazy with the characters wearing hats. Yes, in the 1950s, it was an era where men often wore hats with their suits. So you will see hats from time to time. But I actually think it was a nice touch not to just assume that every character needed to have a hat on. It made the film actually less cliche, along with the lack of chain smoking. You can leave that to Quentin Tarantino. All right, let's get into the film. So it begins with a montage of 1940s and early 1950s Hollywood with a narration from a gossip columnist named Sid Hudgens, played by Danny DeVito. You got to Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house, and inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows, you could even be discovered, become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. 
In the hit show Badge of Honor, the L.A. cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden, but there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen, Mickey C to his fans, local L.A. color to the nth degree, and his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato. Mickey C's the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, cause hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixter. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum, and it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. Now, what's interesting about this film, as you will discover, is the writers of the screenplay didn't fall into the trap of using 1950s vernacular for all of the characters. The only character that uses the jargon and the slang of the times is the Sid Hudgens character. This was incredibly savvy because it doesn't alienate the modern audiences, but it still allows for nostalgia to exist in the film. We are then introduced to three different members of the police force. Officer Bud White, played by Russell Crowe. Sergeant Jack Vincennes, played by Kevin Spacey. And Sergeant Ed Exley, played by Guy Pearce. Bud is hard-nosed and grizzled. Jack is a celebrity cop and gets the headlines and works as a consultant on a cop TV show. And Ed is a fresh-faced, by-the-book officer looking to rise up the ranks as quickly as possible because his father was a much-lauded detective and he was killed in the line of duty. You like Santa Claus with that list, bud. Except everyone on it's been naughty. Guy's been out of queue two weeks. Leave it for later. We gotta pick up the rest of the booze and get it to the station. Hollywood, this is 6 Adam 7. Have Central send a prowler to 4216 Evergreen. Parole violation assault arising from a family dispute. We won't be here, but they'll see him. <laughs> Some kind of smart ass. You'll be out in a year and a half. I'll get cozy with your parole officer. You touch her again, I'll have you violated on a kitty raper beef. 
You know what they do to kitty rapers in Quentin. Got some place you can go? Go get yourself fixed up. Merry Christmas, huh? Merry Christmas, man. Let's go, bud. The guys will be waiting. What do you do on Badge of Honor, Jack? I'm the, um, technical advisor. I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. Brett Chase doesn't walk and talk like you. Well, that's because he's the television version. America isn't ready for the real me. Is it true you're the one who arrested Bob Mitchum? Uh-huh. These Badge of Honor guys like to pretend, but being the real thing must be the real. Why don't you and I go someplace quiet? Because I'd love to give you the lowdown on Mitch. Big V. Jack Vincent. Hey. May I have this dance? Of course. Uh, Karen, this is Sid Hutchins from Hush Hush Magazine. Hello, Karen. Hello yourself. What's that about? Uh, we did a piece last year on Janu Dykes in Hollywood. Her name got mentioned. Hey, Jackie boy. A friend of mine just sold some reefer to Matt Reynolds. He's tripping the life fantastic with Tammy Jordan. Sorry, I uh, lost you for a second, Sid. Contract players, Metro. You pinch him, I do you up nice feature next issue. Plus usual 50 cash. No, I need another 50. Two 20s for two patrolmen and a dime for the watch commander at Hollywood Station. Jackie, it's Christmas. No, it's not. It's felony possession of marijuana. Actually, circulation 36,000 and climbing. There's no telling where this is going to go. Radio, television. Once you whet the public's appetite for the truth, the sky's the limit. Sergeant Ed Exley, son of the legendary Preston Exley. Must be a hard act to follow. <laughs> Why not make a mark somewhere else? Why become a cop, Ed? I like to help people. We heard two officers were assaulted this evening. What do you think about that? It goes with the job. But I took the report, and luckily they're okay. Aren't you a little young to be watch commander? It's only for tonight. He uh, married me and have Christmas Eve off. That's a good lead for the story. Sure. Merry Christmas, Captain. Ed wants to be a detective, and his captain, Dudley Smith, played by James Cromwell, tries to talk him out of it, saying that Ed is uh, too by the book to be a detective. He wouldn't be able to stomach the gray areas of being a Los Angeles detective. The gray areas like planning evidence on a supposed guilty person to get in an indictment, or beating a confession out of a supposed guilty person, or shoot a hardened criminal in the back to prevent a court hearing from happening. On the other hand, Bud has the mentality that Captain Smith mentioned to Ed. He'll get rough for almost any situation, and by design. He has intimidation through fear and strength, and he especially has a sore spot for men who beat women. And then there's the finesse and showmanship of Jack, who makes sure that the media folks, like the sleazy Sid Hudgens, is on the scene to take pictures when Jack makes his ceremonial arrests, like a pot bus on a celebrity, just like when Robert Mitchum was arrested back in the day. What are you doing here? Hey, you know me. I'm keeping the streets safe, boys. All right, take these two and get them dressed and book them. Please, yes, sir. don't Jack, do party's upstairs. Okay, I'll be right up. Next thing. What's that for? Well, you are watch commander tonight, aren't you? Yeah, so? Well, it's a gratuity from Hush Hush Magazine, you know? Buy yourself a new pair of loafers. Uh, no thanks, Jack. You keep your pay off. I'm not interested. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on. 
What the hell is this? Six six. Mexican, sir. The ones who assaulted Brown and Helenowski. Yeah, I heard Helenowski lost six pints of blood and Brown's in a coma. They're home with bruises and muscle pulls. It's not what I heard. Let's get these men booked and into the lockup. Hey, Stan, you guys hear what those taco vendors did to Helenowski and Brown? Helenowski lost an eye and they're reading Brown his last rites. Well, that ought to make for a very Merry Christmas for Helenowski and Brown. Hey, guys. Guys. They brought the Mexicans in. They're downstairs. Let's do it. Yeah, come on, guys. Let's get him. Hey, Stensland, the party's upstairs. This doesn't concern you. Come on, guys. Haven't you got work to do? Go back to the party. Hey, hey, come on, come on, it's Christmas. Help come me on, out, Come on, right? Move it! It's Christmas Eve. I've just got a few more questions for the kids. Hey, don't all have to be down here, guys. Go. Hey, White, you better put a leash on your partner before he kills somebody. Teach him a lesson! This is for ours, Poncho. Game stand! Let me through! What are you looking at? What are you looking at? Come on! What the? Come on, Shut up! Move! Move! You're sick! You're gonna Hey! 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 Don't break it up! She got too much! Get back! Get back! Yeah, and fuck your mother! Fuck you! Come on, wait! Stop, officer! That's an order! Hey! Bloody Christmas. The press love to label. Officer White, you should know this is bigger than the police board. The grand jury's convening. Indictments may be handed down. Will you testify? No, sir, I won't. District Attorney Law. You and Officer Stenslin brought the liquor to the station. Stenslin was already drunk. So do you see how appearing as a voluntary witness against him could offset the damage that you've done to yourself? Sir, I won't testify against my partner or anyone else. This man is a disgrace. You're badge and gun, officer. You're suspended from duty. Dismissed. Ed, we need police witnesses to offset the damage done to the department. I'm asking if... Justice has to be served. Of course I'll testify. Why do you feel that way, Edmund? Most of the men don't. That's because they think silence and integrity are the same thing. Not exactly the image of the new LAPD we're trying to create. Welcome to Los Angeles, the city of the future. May I make a suggestion, sir? By all means. 
The public will expect the department to protect its own and sweep this under the carpet. Don't. Shift the guilt to men whose pensions are secured. Force them to retire. But somebody has to swing. So indict, try, and convict Richard Stensland and Bud White. Secure them jail time. The message will be very clear. This department, your new LAPD, will not tolerate officers who think they're above the law. So Bud won't rat on his friends. Ed wants a clean department and will willfully testify, of course. And then there's Jack, who initially says he won't testify until the powers that be threaten to take away his TV show. And magically, he's willing to testify against the officers that started the jail riot. And Jack rationalizes his decision by telling Ed that the officers that are going to be kicked off the force are going to be retiring soon anyway. So he'll get a soft suspension and be back on the force in weeks. Essentially, it's a vacation. Bud meets with Captain Smith off the record at a bar. Bud is put back on the force as the captain likes having a tough guy cop willing to do what's necessary for certain cases. And he's assigned to a job immediately for the captain. The new assignment is to beat the crap out of a secondary mobster who's trying to fill the void of Mickey Cohen, who's been put in prison for 10 years. And since the DA wants Los Angeles to be crime-free, Bud is the muscle to make sure this gangster doesn't do business in L.A. Ed is now Lieutenant Detective. He takes a call of a robbery homicide at a diner called the Night Owl. It's an absolute massacre, as the diner employees and patrons were all brutally killed. And one of the patrons was Bud's partner, who was recently discharged for the jail riot. And there were six victims in total. Also, one of the victims was a woman named Susan Lefferts. Bud had seen her in a chance encounter outside of a liquor store sitting in a vehicle, and she had her nose bandaged up. Bud thought she was being abused, but actually she was just recovering from a nose job to look more like Rita Hayworth. The man she was with was Pierce Patchett, played by David Stathern, who is a high-end pimp that has a stable of women who look just like movie stars. Bud finds out from the liquor store owner where Patchett lives and questions him and discovers these details. The next stop is another woman in Patchett's harem, Lynn Bracken, played by Kim Basinger, whose look is very much reminiscent of Veronica Lake. Come on, I know you're not asleep. You talking to me? What do you want? My five bucks. It was the only one I had in one corner was torn off. Right now? No, hey, don't, don't make me call the conductor. Don't believe it's I understand. Okay, fine. Mm. Oh, baby. Bad news. You have to go. Go? Something very important has come up and you have to go. But I'll make it up to you, okay? I will, I promise. Excuse me. I hope your friend owes you something. Is it the cop? Miss Bracken, I'm Officer White. I've been expecting you, just not this soon. Pierce called. He told me what happened to Sue. Everything all right, doll? Want me to get rid of him? Hit the road, pal. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. LAPD shit, Bert. Get the fuck out of here. I'll call your wife to come get you.
Would you care for a drink? Yeah, scotch. Straight. I was friendly with Sue Lefferts, but we weren't friends. You know what I mean? You sorry she's dead? Of course I am. What kind of question is that? Do you know why Pierce is humoring you? Use words like that, you might make me mad. But do you know? Yeah, I know. Patrick's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How did she meet Patrick? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? Women deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. <sighs> well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Pierce Patchett. He takes a cut of our earnings and invests it for us. Doesn't let us use narcotics and he doesn't abuse us. Can your policeman's mentality grasp those contradictions? He had you cut to look like Veronica Lake. No. I'm really a brunette. But the rest is me. And that's all the news that's fit to print. It's nice meeting you, officer. I'd like to see you again. Are you asking me for a date or an appointment? I don't know. Well, if you're asking me for a date, I should know your first Forget name. Forget I asked. Ed and Jack get a tip about three black men who were seen in a maroon coupe with shotguns. A similar description of the suspects leaving the night owl the night of the shootings. With the assistance of two other officers, they make the arrest. The evidence of the shell casings at the night owl match the weapons found in the coupe, which leads to an interrogation of the suspects. Ed takes the lead on the interrogation and, using some tricks of the trade, has the audio of each room piped in through the speakers to each interrogation room by using switches hidden under the table. This way, if a suspect tries to rat out one of the guys, the other suspect hears it in real time with their own ears. I ain't got shit to say till I see a judge. Were you on hop? You guys were all passed out when we arrested you. Were you hopped up, Ray? I and Lewis fuck with that shit, man, not me. Where do they get their stuff? Come on. Give me one to feed the DA. It'll make me look good. And I'll say Sugar Ray's not a punk like his sissy partners. 
All right, Raymond. Tell me one more thing about Jones and Fontaine. Where do they get their drugs? Roland Navarrete. He runs a hole up on Bunker Hill. And he sells red devils. Actually, it's good. I'll give him that. I'm going to take a break. You know, Ray, I'm talking about the gas chamber. And you haven't even asked me what this is about. You got a big guilty sign around your neck. That was masterful, Edmund. This one's ready to go. Give Jones the newspaper. I want him primed. I'll take the cuffs off so he can read it. Ray Collins just ratted you off. Said the night owl was your idea. I think it was Ray's idea. You talk, I think I can save your life. Son, six people are dead, and someone has to pay for it. Now it can be you, or it can be Ray. Lewis, he called you queer. Said at Casitas you took it up the ass. I didn't kill nobody! Son, you know what's going to happen to you if you don't talk. You'll go to the gas chamber, so for God's sake, admit what you did. I didn't mean to hurt her. Maybe she's okay. Okay? Well, these people are all in the morgue. They were dead when you left them. I just wanted to lose my cherry. She don't die, so I don't die. She don't die, so I don't die. Lewis, who's the girl? What's her name? Who are you talking about? Was she at the night out? Lewis, listen to me. Was she at the night out? This newspaper shit ain't shit. Where's the girl Fontaine's talking about? Did you kill her? You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. I told you that! Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive. You think? Then where is she now? To leave her someplace? To sell her out? <laughs> Tell me where she is. Move! <laughs> White? Line six! Where's the girl? White, I have this under control. Put the weapon where down! Is the girl! Nine Avalon, Brown Corner House, upstairs. As a surprise confession to everyone, there was one patron of the Night Owl that survived and was kidnapped by three men. She's supposedly still alive. The officers immediately rush to try to save the woman. Bud is the lead on the rescue. The woman is tied and gagged to a bed and badly beaten, but she's still alive and conscious. With her eyes and a nod, she gives signals where her captor is located for Bud to arrest the man. He's in the other room watching television. The man doesn't even make a move and Bud shoots him in the chest, killing him. Bud then pulls out a gun out of his pocket and fires into the wall to make it seem like the man attempted to shoot him. Bud then places the gun in the man's hand. As Captain Smith mentioned earlier, this was the type of justice he was talking about. No trial for this guy. It was an immediate execution. You went around back, sir! Miss, I'm Lieutenant Exley. I'm sorry to have to ask you this. I need to know what time they left you. Get her to the hospital. I realize this is difficult. 
give your career a rest. Leave her alone. A naked guy with a gun? You expect anyone to believe that? Get the fuck away from me. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. Justice. You don't know the meaning of the word, you ignorant bastard. Yeah? Well, you think it means getting your picture in the paper. Why don't you go after criminals for a change instead of cops? Stenzlin got what he deserved, and so will you. And then when his blood is up, his blood's always up. But perhaps you should stay away from him altogether. Raymond Collins, Ty Jones, and Louis Fontaine. They are considered armed and extremely dangerous. Repeat, the night all suspects have escaped. So after killing the one suspect, the three that were held for questioning escaped from custody. Ed gets a tip of where the suspects might be, and he decides to bring a shotgun with him. This firearm will let her lead to a certain nickname for him. There he is. You did good, kid. You see the place was a nightmare, blood everywhere. Who'd have thought? Shotgun Ed. Shotgun Ed. Somebody even cleaned up. Shotgun Ed. Come on, kid. So yes, Ed took out all of the suspects after they began firing on him and his backup. The other officer was killed. And just like that, Ed is a legend in the making and receives a Medal of Valor. In the meantime, Bud is infatuated with Lynn and often parks outside of her house, watching the various customers come and go. No pun intended. Finally, one morning, he knocks on her door, and she tells him she was wondering when he'd show up again, and you can guess the rest. In other shenanigans, Sid and Jack set up a scandal for the district attorney. Sid discovered that on the side, the district attorney has flings with men, and considering that this was the 1950s, this would essentially end his career. Sid hires a struggling actor named Matt Reynolds to seduce and put the DA in a compromising situation where Sid can get photos of the whole thing and then use the information to blackmail the DA. Jack shows up at the motel room that Sid arranged for Matt to take the DA to. Jack has a change of heart about the whole setup, but when Jack arrives to presumably call off the ruse, he finds Matt lying dead on the floor with his throat cut. We then cut to Bud with Lynn and we find out what makes him lose it when he sees abused women. Where'd this come from? When I was 12, my old man went after my mother with a bottle. I got in the way. So you saved her? Not for long. I'm sorry, it's none of my business. He tied me to the radiator. I watched him beat my mother to death with a tire iron. three days before a truant officer found us. They never found the old man. Is that why you became a cop? To get even? Maybe. Do you like it? used to. Now it's all strong arm sitting duck stuff. I mean, if I could, I could get a chance to work homicide like a real detective. That prick actually, he shot the wrong guys. Whoever killed Stensland is still around. I know it in here. 
I know it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it, that's all. I'm not smart enough. Just the guy they bring in to scare the other guy shitless. You're wrong. You found Patchett. You found me. You're smart enough. Without them comparing notes yet, both Bud and Ed have doubts about the Night Owl case, because there are holes in the case. Bud decides to go to Susan Lefford's mother's house to ask some more questions. When he's there, he looks around the house and notices a particular foul odor coming from the basement of the house. Her mom thinks it's a dead animal, but when he goes into the basement, Bud finds a decomposed human body. He finds the wallet in the jacket of the body, and the license says Buzz Meeks, who was an ex-cop and the driver for Pierce Patchett. Bud decides to leave the body in the basement. Separately, Ed also ends up visiting Mrs. Lefferts, and he, of course, also finds the body. But he actually has the coroner take it since Bud had the man's ID with him. Vincennes, I need your help with something. I'm busy right now. Why don't you just go ask some of your boys in homicide? I can't. I need someone outside of homicide. I want you to tail Bud White till he goes on duty this evening. Why don't you do me a real favor and leave me alone? Do you make the three Negroes for the Night Owl killings? What? It's a simple question. Why in the world do you want to go digging any deeper into the Night Owl killings, Lieutenant? Rolo Tomasi. Is there more to that or am I supposed to guess? Rollo was a purse snatcher. My father ran into him off duty. And he shot my father six times and got away clean. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rollo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. Was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? <laughs> I don't remember. What do you want, Exley? I just want to solve this thing. Night Owl was solved. No. I want to do it right. Even if it means paying the consequences? Mm-hmm. All right, college boy, I'll help. But there's a case your boys on homicide don't care about. They think it's just another Hollywood homicide. But I don't. You help me with mine, I'll help you with yours. Deal? Deal.
Johnny Stampanato. Officer Wendell White. I was tricked, Paisano. I ain't your Paisano. And I ain't in the snitch business anymore. You know a guy named Buzz Meeks? Works for Pierce Patchett. Should I? You're a muscle for hire? Meeks is muscle for hire? You tell me? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember now. Meeks, a rundown ex-cop. Same as you're gonna be someday. And that's all you're gonna get. And you can keep your 20 bucks. What do I get if I give you your balls back, you wop cocksucker? Uh, okay. Okay. That was a rumor going around. That makes it a line on a large supply of H. And? Oh, nothing. He skipped out. Two-bit hick like Meeks get his hands on a large supply of heroin. You're right. It's probably bullshit. Even if he did, he could never unload it. Not without drawing all kinds of attention. Maybe that's why he's under a house in Elysian Park and he don't smell too good. Paisano. So while Bud is trying to track down the leads, Ed is having Jack follow Bud. Ed doesn't even realize that he and Bud are trying to solve the same case. Both Ed and Jack end up seeing Bud visit Lynn. So the dynamic duo decides to do some more investigating, and Ed makes a major faux pas. I think your case and my case are somehow connected. It's Fleur de Lis again. Fleur de Lis? Yeah. Whatever you desire. Porno. High-class whores cut to look like movie stars. Who knows what else? Reynolds, the kid that got killed, was involved. So's Pierce Patchett. The millionaire? Yeah, I think we should go talk to him. First, I want to brace Stampanato. Want an autograph? Right to MGM. Since when do two-bit hoods and hookers give out autographs? What'd you say to me? LAPD, sit down. Who in the hell do you think you are? Uh, take a walk, honey, before I haul your ass downtown. You are making a large mistake. Get away from our table. Shut up. A hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. Hey! She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. How was I supposed to know? Ah, <laughs> uh, poor Lana Turner. <laughs> well, since questioning the real Lana Turner didn't work as planned, Ed decides to go for the lookalike, Lynn. Miss Bracken. I'm Lieutenant Exley. I know who you are. Bud told me all about you. Is that so? And what did White have to say? He said you were smart. 
He also said you're a coward and that you'd screw yourself to get ahead. Well, let's concentrate on my smarts. Pierce Patchett made you, didn't he? Taught you how to dress, talk, and think. And I am very impressed with the results. But I need some answers. And if I don't get them, I'm going to take you and Patchett down. Pierce Patchett can take care of himself. And I'm not afraid of you. And you forget one thing, Lieutenant. Pierce also taught me how to fuck. And he tells you who to fuck. Why does he have you fucking Bud White? What makes you think I'm not seeing Bud because I want to? It would be easier for you if there was an angle, wouldn't it? You're afraid of Bud because you can't figure out how to play him. He doesn't follow the same rules of politics as you do. Makes him dangerous. I can handle Bud White. Can you? I see Bud because I want to. I see Bud because he can't hide the good inside of him. I see Bud because he makes me feel like Lynn Bracken and Nuts and Veronica like look-alike who fucks for money. I see Bud because he doesn't know how to disguise who he is. I see Bud for all the ways he's different from you. Don't underestimate me, Miss Bracken. The way you've underestimated Bud White? Fucking me and fucking Bud aren't the same thing, you know. Stop talking about Bud White. This was a nice setup by Lynn, as Sid was in the window all along, waiting to take photos of Ed and Lynn together. Everyone is screwing each other in Los Angeles in one way or the other. Well, the double crosses are only about to get more interesting as Jack pays a visit to Captain Smith. Jack. I need two minutes, Dudley. It's important. That's a good thing for you, my wife and four fair daughters are at the beach in Santa Barbara. Do you remember Buzz Meeks, Dudley? A disgrace as a police officer. Straight D fitness reports from every CEO he ever served under. What about him? Twelve years ago, he was on a vice rouse with Dick Stensland. They questioned Pierce Patchett about a a blackmail scam. Patchett had Sid Hudgens photographing prominent businessmen with hookers. <laughs> anyway, charges were dropped. Insufficient evidence. You were the supervising officer on that case, and I was wondering if you remember anything about it. What's this all about, Boyo? Part of it has to do with a murder. I've been working with Ed Exley on it. You're a narco, Jack, not homicide. Since when do you work with Edmund Exley? Well, it's a private investigation. Uh, I messed something up. I'm trying to make amends. 
Don't start trying to do the right thing, boyo. You haven't had the practice? Buzz Mix and Dick Stenzel. So, uh, what does Exley make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the record room. Sergeant Vincennes was killed by a 32 slug to the heart. Time of death, approximately 1 a.m. Although he was found in Echo Park, preliminary forensics indicates the body was most likely moved. I want two man teams to scour that entire neighborhood. Our justice must be swift and merciless. That is all. Edmund, might I have a word with you? We're trying to run down a lead on an associate of Vincennes. The records check has led to a dead end. What's the name? Rolo Tomasi. You ever heard Vincennes mention him? No, no, I haven't. Probably nothing. Still, keep your eyes open, eh, Boyle? Aha! Only Ed knows about the MacGuffin known as Rolo Tomasi. This was such a great scene because it totally catches the audience off guard, mostly due to Kevin Spacey playing the scene so unassumingly. Okay, so we know that Captain Smith is dirty, but what is the payoff to all this corruption? Everything will play itself out in the next 30 minutes, and it's up to you to find out what will happen. This is one of the best neo-noir films ever made. It's got everything that's great about the 1940s detective and film noir films with the grittiness of modern police mysteries. The acting is truly top-notch. It's an extremely well-crafted film, and it deserved to win tons of awards. But sadly, again, it was released the same year as Titanic, so that wasn't going to happen. But for me, L.A. Confidential is a far superior film to Titanic. But hey, there was no Celine Dion and wind blowing in the hair of a romantic couple. So there you go. Sorry, L.A. Confidential. And it definitely kicked off an amazing run of films in the United States for Russell Crowe. All right, some fun facts. So L.A. Confidential was nominated for nine Oscars. It won two. Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger and Best Adapted Screenplay. It lost Best Film, Director, Cinematography, Art Director, Original Score, Film Editing, and Best Sound, all to Titanic. 
Curtis Hansen hired dialect coaches for the Australian-accented Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce and also had them watch old detective films in order for them to grasp the feel of 1950s Los Angeles cops. There was a 1999 TV pilot starring Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Vincennes, which of course never turned into a full-fledged series. Though interestingly, it wasn't too many years later before Sutherland starred in the extremely popular series called 24. There was a sequel in development as recently as 2020, which would have taken place in 1974 with both Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce reprising their roles and then having Chadwick Boseman playing a young upstart cop. That would have been terrific. But sadly, the sudden death of Bozeman put an end to those plans. And for me, Bozeman was the second coming of Denzel Washington. In preparation, Curtis Hansen showed his cast and crew the films Kiss Me Deadly from 1955, Bad Influence from 1990, The Killing from 1956, The Bad and the Beautiful from 1952, In a Lonely Place from 1950, Private Hell 36 from 1954, and The Lineup from 1958. And if you were wondering about the body count in this film, 30. All right, we have DJ Metal Mike Tyler from ThatMetalStation.com and his partner in crime, Bill Roseberry. They joined me for a great discussion that we always have when we get together. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with a dynamic duo and, and two of my favorite detectives, and that's Metal Mike Tyler and Bill Roseberry. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for having me, Mr. Bad Beat. <laughs> What's going on, Brian? Appreciate it, man. Love doing this. I always go through, uh, you know, films. Uh, Bill was generous enough to give me kind of a list of, of all the movies he has. And uh, Bill and Mike are always around each other. And so a lot of their tastes are, are similar. And one of the films I, uh, I mentioned that both of them really lit up was L.A. Confidential. And uh, and we'll start with Mike on this one. Uh, are you a fan a fan of a classic film noir? And uh, and I'm guessing then if you are, then you're 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 a fan of neo noir. Oh, that, that's a definite yes. Um, yeah, I'm a I love uh, old I love movies of all kinds, you know. And I love old movies. It was something that my mom and dad kind of um, fostered in me as a as a young child. And and one of my favorite type of movies. I mean, <clears throat> I'm a big sci-fi fantasy freak, and I love horror, too. But one of my other favorite genres, not just in movies but in books, is mysteries. I love a good mystery. I love a good whodunit. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of my favorite movies have been, well, like The Maltese Falcon and Double and yeah. and and movies like that. You know, uh, I just love – and like you said, I love the whole film noir, the look of it. Yeah. Um Another one we just recently watched, which we've talked about covering, I consider it a film noir, and that's The Stranger with Orson Welles and Edward G. Robinson. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, which uh, <laughs> me and Bill just recently watched <laughs> that, and it was funny. Bill's like, dude, Orson Welles is fucking creeping me out here, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's perfect. Oh, he was great. So anyway, um, yes, I'm a big fan of that. So I'm a big fan of neo-noir as well. Even when they mix the genres, like some of my favorite um, science fiction stories is the robot novels by Isaac Asimov because he takes the mystery, the pulp mystery, and mixes it with the sci-fi. And I just love that kind of stuff. So Sure. And, and speaking of the creepy factor, I think all film noir has a certain creepiness to it. Whether well, it sure, the, sure. The the femme fatale. And in this case, I think Danny DeVito is kind of sleazy and creepy in his own way. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. 
Yeah. So let's get Bill. How about you? Are are you a classic film noir guy, or are you more like kind of the newer mysteries? Because I know you liked the nice guys. We talked about the nice guys. Well, I mean, not that the nice guys is the same as a like confidential, but it's got a lot of old school feel to it too. I I don't think I'm as much of an. I like a good movie, but I'm I I don't know how I really categorize myself. I don't watch a ton of old movies, um, but when I see a good one, I'll add it to my my um collection like i have stuff like casablanca and um, mm-hmm. i'm trying to think some some westerns i know you like oh yeah lots of, lots of old uh john wayne westerns and and um you know uh, jimmy stewart uh sure. westerns and, and things like that uh and i own stuff like the wild ones and um you know on the waterfront i got a lot of old i got a lot of older movies too in my collection but i don't think that i necessarily go to that it just depends on how well the movie's done when i'll watch it and i one thing that i do like is a good mystery i mean even when yeah. i when i do my writing if i do any creative writing i lean towards suspense and mm-hmm. and things like that is is where i write i like reading suspense novels uh so this this movie had a lot of that in it for me you know and then the cast is probably what drew it to drew me to it the most. Okay. Um, as at that point in my life, I mean, it's huge. Unfortunately, it sounds dirty to say it now, but I was a big Kevin Spacey fan, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and I was getting used to Russell Crowe there, and I really liked Guy Pierce at that yep. point. Russell Crowe really stole my heart when he did Gladiator, but uh, he that was, was a few years later. Yep. Right. Right. He was fantastic in LA confidential though. And then James Cromwell, um, you know, what a great actor he is. And then Danny DeVito, you're right. He was such a creep in that movie. And as I watch it now that I've had a, you know, 15 year journalism career under my belt, he, uh, he really bothers me. He has no ethics, does he? His media ethics are completely out the window. <laughs> oh, he, he is the, the typical sleazy tabloid, especially for that era. I mean, they still exist, obviously, but uh, back then, that was uh, he, he was true to form on that. And so I'll, I'll keep going to Bill on this one because you mentioned the writing. Did you read the book adaptation? And then after you answer, well, we'll get Metal Mike to talk about it. No, I did not read the book. That's funny. This is a question you need to ask Mike because mm-hmm. he did read the book. So oh, okay. tell there. you more about that. I, I have not, though. So, Mike, did you read it after the movie or before? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was curious, you know, and I'd heard that the book was different from the film, and it is. It's Don't long. Get... It's really yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. Well, all his books are, man. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, and they all kind of interconnect. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll have characters from one, and I haven't read the other books yet, but... Yeah, it's definitely different. Uh, one of the interesting things about it, though, of course, with the book, is it kind of gives you more background on the characters. And none of the characters, I'm talking the three male protagonists, um, sure. are very likable when you first meet them. Great point. Um, you know, especially in the book. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, as the, as the story goes along and the journey they go through – by the end of it, you're on their side totally, you know, um, but much like the movie in that respect. But, yeah, I, I got to say, man, in some ways, I thought the movie was better than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. movie's more cohesive. The, the writer, I think James Elroy, right? That's his name. 
He wrote the novel. That's right. And yeah. you're to- you're spot on because I think the screenwriters, it's a real, it's a different, to be a writer, to be a screenwriter is totally different than a novel because you have to streamline things. I think exactly. the two, the two yep. screenwriters did an amazing job on. They did a phenomenal film. job, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and believe it or not, there are some cases where I do feel the the movie is better in the book. Perfect sure. example, Blade Runner is a mm. much better film than Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. The <laughs> book's kind of weird. I mean, really weird. And sure. it's kind of, it's okay, but the what Ridley Scott did, it, yeah, he made it a hundred times better in my mm-hmm. opinion. And I kind of feel that way about this, you know, you know, no disrespect to any James Elroy fans out there, but no. And that, that's, that's great. And I appreciate the honesty. And, and uh, for me, the most obvious one is the natural, uh, the book is just of <laughs> yeah. the time. It's not, it is depressing as hell. And the magic that, that was on, on screen is just totally gone from that book. Uh, Mike, who, who, who do you like better as, uh, as the detective? Do you like, uh, Guy Pierce or Russell Crowe better? <sighs> I gotta say, I'm I'm Team Bud White all the way. Okay. Almost immediately because, well, he feels about things kind of the way I do. Like, you know, like when when the movie opens up and you see him, you know, beat the shit out of the wife beater. I'm like, oh, I yep. love this guy already. You know, sure. this guy rules because those are the type of things I'd like to do to wife beaters. You know sure. what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, yeah, this guy rules. Um, but that's what was interesting about the whole story is that every they all have their good points, but they have some flaws, you know, and it it's yeah. Bud White's my probably my favorite character. Not that I didn't like, you know, Vincennes and uh, Exley. I did. I did. Yep. You yep. know, but uh, yeah, I Bud White. I'm team Bud White. And that was the movie where I'm like, this guy, Russell Crowe is going to be somebody like he, he was great in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. Not that Guy Pierce and Kevin Spade, everybody was great in it, but man, he was just so good in it. And, and that's what made me a Russell Crowe fan. It was like, that's what, when I found out him and Ridley Scott, who's one of my favorite directors, were doing Gladiator together, I was all on board because I loved what I'd seen in LA Confidential, and I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan. So mm-hmm. it was like, oh, yeah, this is like peanut butter and jelly, baby. You know, <laughs> well, let's yeah. Do this. This really was the film that that, that this was the breakout role for Russell Crowe because he was, uh, you know, he had a great career in Australia, as did Guy Pierce. But this Mm -hmm. for American audiences, this just kind of sent him to the next level. And he just took off after that. Bill, are you uh, Bud or Ed? Which one are you going with? Um, Bud White. I would say I'm team Bud White, too. Although I think in in reality, you know, I'd, I'd like to be team Bud White, but I think in reality, I'd probably be more. Team Exley. If I was, uh, of course you would. If I was, you know, be, <laughs> being me personally, but no, I, I mean, um, I'd like to be more Bud White. I mean, um, you know, the the tough guy, and you know, like I said, it, when he beats the shit out of the, you know, women women abuser right at the beginning of the movie, it's 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 awesome. He's just such an intense and raw guy. I mean, there's no, there's not much hidden behind him you know is he he doesn't really have agendas and mm-hmm. he, what you see is what you get you know and i'd like to feel like i'm like that mike's like that but um you know i'm also a guy that you know when i'm there i try and be I, I, when i'm when i'm at a job or something like that i try and be diplomatic i'm trying to be the guy that kind of 
fits in and, and, and does stuff. So I see where, where Exley's coming from too. You know, he's very driven to make a career for himself, oh, definitely. you know, and, and I can respect that too. I mean, I, I had, I liked, I liked both characters, uh, quite a bit, you know, you know, Vincennes was a guy, he's a little bit <laughs> sleazy, you know, and I mean, sure. I love the part where, when he, when Exley's telling him why he became a cop and he goes, why did you become a cop? And he goes, Hmm. He looks and, and he gets that kind of look on his face of almost, you know, where he feels bad. And he's like, I, I don't remember, mm-hmm. you know, because he's so he's in the system at this point, at this point. Yep. in the system that he, he doesn't even remember what drove him to want to do good. You know, right. So, Mike, read it, if you can remember the book a little bit, do they get more into the book um, about why Bud White is the way he is towards, you know, really kind of wanting to to save um, you know, women that are being abused or things like that. Cause they touch upon it in the film, oh, but they don't definitely. really get deep It's a lot okay. more graphic and detailed in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep. yeah, he, uh, definitely, it's all because of what he told Lynn in the film, mm-hmm. you know, what happened to his mother. I mean, that's right. basically it. And how to him, he never got, he never got to take dad out. See, so for right. him, every guy he beats on, that's him trying to make what happened to his mom right in his mind kind of sure. mm-hmm. um so uh much in the way that edmund in his situation you know which i don't want to say too much about that yet sure I, you know because there's some people like you pointed out have not seen this movie and you know i want them to so definitely you know. Um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, another thing though, I do want to interject though, Bildo. I I do think that yes, you you are you have some elements of Exley, but one thing I don't th- see you doing is just like, oh yeah, man, I'll rat everybody out. <laughs> like, no, like did. no, you know that that's not you at all. Um, no, but uh, not you know. Yeah, I mean, Bill, you know, he wants to advance himself like we all do. I, I mean, everybody sure. in life is looking for what I call the BBD, the bigger, better deal. Sure. But you don't want to step on people to get there. You know, I mean, that's not who Bill is. So just wanted to throw that out there, folks. Well, I think that's the brilliance of this plot is you have three entirely different detectives. And it's just like real life. You're going to deal with people like this who all have different motives. And uh, and they don't really, um, you know, they don't tell you which one's better. It's up to you to decide you know, which mm-hmm. one works. And I think that's, that's a brilliance of good writing. Uh, going back to the plot, do you, was it hard to follow? Were you all in from the beginning? Were there any spots that you would have kind of adjusted? Uh, you first, Bill. Well, um, no, it, I love the plot. It is a movie though, for people that have not seen it, you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to pay attention. Definitely. Phone down, you know, nope surfing on the internet on your laptop you know don't be getting up and going into the kitchen and getting stuff <laughs> if you do pause it i right. mean you you need to pay attention because there are a lot of things going on in this movie and they're all important and if you if you really buy into it you're going to be entertained and you're going to be thoroughly satisfied at the end of it but if you kind of half ass pay attention to it you're going to get lost because there's a lot going on. And, and, and that's what I love about it. I mean, you, you know, a good suspense and mystery. I mean, you know, there's, there's little Easter eggs that are given early in a movie mm-hmm. and, and midway and stuff that 
you gotta pay attention to those things because they're gonna come up at the end. There's gonna be a there's gonna be a quiz at the end, and um, you know you better have been paying attention so you can pass the quiz and 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 figure out the the end of the movie. And this is this is a great great one for that. There's plenty of uh, twists and turns and 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 small Easter eggs to pay attention to. And that's why I think uh, something's lost on the, uh, not having the movie theater experience anymore because that's a place where you can really hyper focus on a on a thing right. and as, as easy yeah. it is as it is to have it at home and you're going to be distracted because there's too many distractions at home mike how, how did you feel about the plot was there anything you would have changed or did you enjoy were you was it easy to follow for you um i'm with my my buddy here bill i, I think that uh you cannot casually watch la confidential agreed you just yep. can't and mm-hmm. uh you know, uh, but that's what I love about it. You know, I like a movie that makes me think, man. If 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 a plot to a film is predictable, then I don't think it's a good. If I know what's going to happen before the, you know, before, you know, like before I've even seen it, then that's boring to me, man. Sure. You know, I, I it doesn't do anything for me. So for for me, uh, yeah, I honestly, I'm going to come out and say this. I think this is one of those movies that there's certain movies that are perfect movies. Mm-hmm. I think this is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think there's any flaws in this film, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And the performances, mm-hmm. and the writing, the structure, the plots, everything. It's a perfect movie, man. And there's only a few of those movies. You know, people mention, like, Back to the Future. I would concur with that. That's a perfect movie. You know, it hits all the beats for what it was trying to achieve. I sure. feel that way with L.A. Confidential. So one of the key well, things to film noir and neo noir for that matter is the femme fatale. That's that's one of the first things you learn. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think you know Kim Basinger hit all the notes there, especially if you go back into uh, you know the original film noirs with Barbara Stanwyck and of course Alana Turner, things like that. Did you find her to be the perfect femme fatale, or would you have picked someone different if if you would have? Yep. Who would you have picked? And no. Start, uh, start oh, sorry. No, no. Um, I thought she was perfect. I thought um, and, you know, keep in mind, this is at a point in her career where Kim wasn't really the A-lister that she had been, you know, and she was getting a little older, but still a very beautiful woman. Yeah, I thought she was perfect. I mean, I ain't gonna lie, man. I think maybe the reason why I love Bud White so much is I do see a bit of myself in Bud, you know. Mm Like Bill pointed out, I'm kind of a guy that, you know, there's no there ain't no mystery about me. I wish I was one of those like cool, enigmatic guys, but I'm not, man. What you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I put I put it all out there. It's just the way I am. And and the fact that some people underestimated Bud throughout my life. And I know this to be true because I've had it confirmed by people. I've been underestimated. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know, oh, well, he's just this, you know, like when I was younger, I was a fetus with clothes on. OK, so I was skinny. So a lot of bullies thought I would just be this pushover because I was this skinny little guy. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm going to take this textbook and smash your face with it. If you, you know, you know, I will. You might be bigger than me, but I will find an equalizer. And it's not that I went looking for trouble. I hate fighting hate it but also the fact that i grew up with my brother mark who's mentally disabled i had to defend him a lot you know Uh i mean you know how people are i don't have to you know 
write a book for anybody. But, you know, it's just situations like that where people thought, oh, well, this guy's just going to be a puss or he's, you know, I mean, I've even had people say, it, you know, that they didn't think I was very smart, you know, just, you know, and part of that was on me because when I was in school at the time, I didn't really apply myself. So it's situations like that because a lot of people think Bud's just, just this mindless thug. He's just this dumb oaf and he's not. He's anything but. So to but kind of people, tie it back to because it's actually a good point. So Kim Basinger doesn't view him that way, and I think that's not why, at all. That's why no. they're kind of attracted to each other as well. Um, how did you feel, Bill, about the femme fatale character? Would you have, would you have picked anyone else? I thought she was perfect. Um, <laughs> matter of fact, uh, I I think that in my opinion, this is probably the sexiest she ever was for me. The mm-hmm. way they had her made up, just the clothes she wore, just the way she carried herself. And she's got to be, I mean, in her 40s at this point. Sure, sure. And I mean, I thought she was, you know, beautiful, it, it acted well. I mean, it's it's my favorite um, role um, in her entire filmography. I mean, okay. I think I think she is perfect in this movie, um, you know, and uh, um, and you're right. As far as her and Bud's attraction, one of the reasons why I think Bud, obviously, you're going to be attracted to her. I mean, she's she's just perfect. I mean, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that she did see him and, and, and for what he really was and how smart he was, because, you know, what Mike was talking about, you know, there's one that one point where the part where they're having a conversation. He bought into the fact that he wasn't smart enough. Right. He bought in to what other people thought of him. And it had, it was something that he carried with him. And I think we all do that. You know, I mean, if, if people beat you down and they and they expect something out of you, at some point you start to feel, well, maybe they're right. Exactly. You know, and and uh, she was she was great at lifting him up. I think the reason why he was able to to be as successful towards the end of this movie is because of of her she she gave him the confidence to do what all he did and that was that was a brilliant part of of you know her character i mean lynn was just like i said she was one of the she stole most of the scene all the scenes that she all, all the scenes she was in in the movie sure and they're they're like two lost souls that just kind of found each other and they're they, right. they just co-mingle perfect and she deserved the oscar too and she i'm, I'm really glad that they got it right when uh, she won Best Supporting Actress as well. All right, so we're going to kind of wrap this up a little bit. You guys just rewatched this. We'll start with Bill. Uh, favorite scenes, uh, you know, takeaways that you got from watching this because you guys always have something. And then after Bill answers, we'll go into what Metal Mike thinks. So go ahead, Bill. I mean, my favorite scenes are, um, you know, <laughs> when when Bud White's beating the shit out of somebody, those are all <laughs> some of my favorites. I mean, uh, well, we just talked know, action uh, movies not too long ago, so yeah. <laughs> um, but another scene, and I don't want to give two two scenes that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, really, are um, the one where uh, with with Exley and um, and Vincennes with Kevin Spacey and Guy Pierce, where they're where he's talking to him about why he became a cop and. And mm-hmm. they're having that whole conversation. I touched on that earlier where where Spacey says he couldn't remember why he became a cop. I love that moment. And I love the moment at James Cromwell's house, which I don't want to give too much away about that. That's probably yep. my favorite part of the movie. Just that scene with James Cromwell and Kevin Spacey there. I, I mean, the first time first time I saw that, I was so floored. 
Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, I just, uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely love that. Another one of my favorites actually is when, um, uh, oh, David Strathairn, we haven't even talked about him. Jeez. Yeah, he's great. He was phenomenal in this too. Yeah. That's another actor that I absolutely adore. And he was great in this, um, such cool under pressure and, and so sleazy. I mean, you know, uh, he was great. Uh, I liked the, the part when Bud went to visit him and, uh, um, you know, how cool he reacted to Bud. Like, he didn't act scared at all. He was just cool under pressure. And uh, another one that, we, you know, is pr- pretty funny is when Kevin Spacey and uh, um, Guy Pierce go to visit. Oh, I can't remember the guy's name because that's something Mike Johnny Stumpinato. Johnny yes. Stumpinato. The Lana, Lana Turner one? And the Lana Turner oh, one where he so actually good. believes that Lana Turner is is one of the, the whores yep. and uh, <laughs> is talking to her like that. And she throws the drink in his face and Kevin Spacey's like, uh, uh, yeah, she, that she is, is Lana. Lana Turner. <laughs> and he, I think when they get back in the car and he just starts laughing, I mean, they're, you're just sitting there cracking up. That's, that's great. But that's something that Mike talked about. When we were watching it. The fact that they, it's totally, it's a totally fictional story, but they mm-hmm. bring in people like, that Lana Turner, Johnny Stumpinato, and um, uh, Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen. Yep. Got real life people and tie it in, and it, you know it just gives it a little bit more of uh, re- reality based um, for you too as you're watching it, which was absolutely just, which was really cool. So how about you, Metal Mike? Favorite scenes and uh, and, and takeaways from uh, um, the last viewing? Oh, good God! Um, there's so many great scenes in this film, uh, man. Uh, one of the things I did want to interject, though, is what Bill just said, because um, mm-hmm. that's another one of my favorite genres is historical fiction. And sure. this is a murder mystery, obviously. It's a film noir or neo, neo-noir, mm-hmm. but it, there's definitely some historical fiction there. And I like that when, when they do that, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so I um, just wanted to throw that out there. But favorite scenes. Well, like I had mentioned before, when, when Bud beats the shit out of the wife beater, I absolutely sure. love that. Oh, man, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give anything away. It's such a sure. good movie. But um, I, I really love the interrogation scene with, with Bud. Mm-hmm. It's so intense that, you know, the whole where Exley starts and then Bud does what he does. I thought that was amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when he goes to rescue um, the girl. You know, and does that. I thought that, and then, then him and Exley get into it, and I love. And here's another thing: we were just talking about David Strathairn. Man, Hume Cromwell, man, Captain Smith was fantastic. Like that yeah. part, it's like, you know, you should stay away from a man when his blood is up, and he's like, his blood's always up. Well, perhaps <laughs> you should stay away from him altogether. I just, I, 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 you know, he had some great, great lines in that movie. The part where when they, when they. uh talk about what happened at the jail that the night the one thing that kind of got the riot promoted yes the yep. the bloody christmas scene yep. which really did happen by the way that's that right really, that really did happen that's um right. he uh you know he oh my, white's a mindless thug and and captain smith says no Edmund, he's just a man that answers yes to some of those questions I've often asked you. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> the dialogue. I mean, man, there's just so many great parts to the film. But one of my favorite parts, but I can't give it away, is the scene where 
Exley and Bud interrogate somebody. Yes. That scene rules. I loved it. I loved the dialogue. I loved what Bud said to him. It was great, man. I mean, like I said, this movie rules. Uh, it's one I didn't see in the theater because it was just kind of in the theater and gone. And I think part of the problem was is it was competing with Titanic that was just blowing up at the time. Right. right. So nobody really knew about it. This was a movie I discovered on video. Mm-hmm. But, man, I fell in love first time I watched it. I was just like, man, this movie rules. And I would recommend it to anybody any chance I got. So. Yeah, I think uh, fans of just film, this is one they'd lean to as opposed to like casual fans of film to go to Titanic. You know, it's kind of like your your casual fans that go to uh, sporting events uh, and as opposed to your hardcore fans. I think hardcore fans go to L.A. Confidential and your casuals go to the more glitzy Titanic because it's which an uh, easier film to watch. James Cameron. I, I love James Cameron. Huge sure. fan. I think he's great. You know, and I think Titanic is a damn good movie, you know, it is. Uh, it is. You can't you can't argue that, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, L.A. Confidential, man, I I can see why it was nominated right along with Titanic, because right. it's a fantastic film, just it like is. Titanic. is. And you guys are equally fantastic. Thank you, as always, for being on. And uh, again, you're going to be on real soon, I'm sure. Oh, Thanks, always. Man. Anytime Appreciate you need it. me, Mr. Bad Beat, let's do it. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.